All right, praise God. Yeah, Brother Luke, uh, we wanted him to come up and share that because he's actually on the team, um, and we have actually uh, seven others going. I'm going to be going as well, so we're very excited. This is going to be such an awesome trip. Okay, um, you know what? Uh, today is going to be a little bit of like an unfolding of announcements. It didn't all come at once, but I do have one more announcement, which is uh, we've been announcing baptism for the last few weeks, and we decided to postpone the service for a little while so that we could accommodate uh, people's schedules better, people who want to get baptized. Um, I don't think it was the most ideal time. So uh, hopefully we're going to be having baptism service later this year, but we're going to have to postpone it until there's a better time. Okay, um, please open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, 31, and then 13, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 31. It's been so good to be in this one portion of scripture for the last almost two week, uh, two months, actually, not two weeks, two months. But okay, 1 Corinthians 12, we're going to look at the very last verse, and then we're going to read the entire chapter 13. So if you're joining us here online, you'll see the verses on the screen behind me. If you're, oh, I'm sorry. If you're joining us in person, it'll be behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be... A, up on your screen at home. Okay, 1 Corinthians 12, 31. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith... Hope and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Amen. Father God, we give you all the glory, and we thank you so much for this beautiful time to gather and to worship, and thank you for being with us always. And thank you that you are, Father, guiding and leading this church. And thank you, Father God, that you have brought us through so much in the last couple years, and even in the last month or so. Father, with COVID hitting our community, thank you for protecting us. Thank you for bringing quick recovery. Uh, it seems to be passing through uh, fairly quickly. And so, Lord God, I give you all the glory and praise for that. And now, Father, continue to teach us from your word. Continue to build up this church upon the firm foundation of your word, that we would continue to look intently at what you have to say so that we may be transformed from glory to glory. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Praise God. Well, today we're going to be wrapping up our entire series on spiritual gifts. And we've already been spending a lot of time on this topic. But we've been walking through seven large questions every single week. And we've had some breaks in between. Got a little sick. 
But we've been looking at these seven questions. But why are spiritual gifts necessary? What are spiritual gifts? Who has spiritual gifts? Can you lose your spiritual gifts? How many spiritual gifts are there? Are the miraculous gifts still for today? And then last week, or the last two weeks, we saw how do I discover my spiritual gifts? So we've been going through all these questions week after week. If you've missed any of them, you can find them all on our website. And we've done our best to answer these questions. But this is not the last time you're going to hear about spiritual gifts. So I'm glad to say that because if you're going to be a part of our church, then eventually someone's going to come to you and say, hey, do you want to do discipleship? We don't want just church attenders. We want disciples. And if you say yes, then you're going to eventually encounter spiritual gifts again. Because that's part of our discipleship training at our church is we go through spiritual gifts. You will go through the gift survey together with your discipler and your other, you know, co-disciples. And so you're going to encounter that again. Not only that, but God willing, this summer, okay, we're, we're still planning, so it's not for sure, but we are hoping to have a one-day retreat. Uh, we're going to have a little bit of a scaled-down retreat, not a full church summer retreat. But at this one-day retreat, we hope to have a workshop where we can talk about spiritual gifts, kind of go more into the details of all the specific gifts, and actually do the survey together. So that'll be a workshop that we want to do if we have this one-day retreat. So if you come to that, you're going to have more opportunities to go deeper into spiritual gifts. And you're going to do it all together with everyone together. So by no means is this the end in terms of spiritual gifts. Uh, they're not the most important thing in this church, but they are important. Okay, if you want to understand your calling from God, if you want to understand your role in the church, how this church should function properly, if you want to be a part of God's mission in the world and fulfill that, then you got to know your spiritual gifts. Okay, you got to understand them and discover them. So this is why we've been spending all this time on spiritual gifts. And so you might be wondering, okay, then what are we going to talk about today? Okay, what more is there? Well, today there is something else I want to look at. There's one more thing. And it's something that can potentially make spiritual gifts worthless in our lives if we don't have this thing. And this thing Paul mentions all throughout chapter 13, but he calls it a more excellent way. It is a more excellent way of using spiritual gifts. It's a more excellent way of living the entire Christian life, but this is what he calls it. And so what do you think it is? Okay, what is he talking about? He's talking about love, okay, God's agape love. But he spends this entire chapter on agape love right in the middle of his teachings on spiritual gifts. So chapter 12, spiritual gifts, chapter 13, agape love, and then he goes back, chapter 14, to spiritual gifts. It's kind of like a big sandwich. Spiritual gifts is kind of like the two pieces of bread, and agape love is like the meat in the middle. And I don't know how you like your sandwiches, but I always prefer them with meat in the middle, amen? I don't want it without meat. It's, you're just having toast. So we want to look at what is in the middle, right in the middle of Paul's teaching on spiritual gifts. It's all about love, agape love. So when you look at 1 Corinthians 13, you begin to see him shifting gears, and he begins to talk about agape love. And it breaks down very nicely into three sections. You know, pastors, they tend to like preaching three points in their sermons. I don't know why. I don't know how it got started. I, I like doing that too. Um, and so pastors like to select different passages in a certain way. They grab a certain number of verses so that they can have three points. Well, we don't need to do that today. 
Because when you look at the entire chapter 13, it nicely breaks down into three sections. So I don't have to be selective here. We can just look at the entire thing. But it breaks down into these three sections. First, it talks about the need for love. Second, it talks about the nature of love. And then finally, the endlessness of love. The endlessness, or you could say the permanence of love. So it very nicely breaks down into these parts. So let's look at these three parts. But first, Paul goes right into the need for love. Look at verses 12.31 all the way to 13.3. But he ends his teaching on spiritual gifts with, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then in verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 1, he switches gears. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So here, Paul is launching into this entire new topic on love. And every time he says the word love there in this chapter, the Greek word is what? I think most of you guys know. It's agape. That's the word every single time. This word can mean benevolence, goodwill towards others. But in the New Testament, almost every single time is more than that. It's talking about God's love. It's talking about divine love, the love that God has expressed and shown to men, to men and women. It's his love towards us. It's a self-giving love. This is the love that Paul's talking about every single time in this chapter. But why is Paul suddenly take, talking about agape love right in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts? Okay, well, why did he switch gears? Well, this agape love cannot be a spiritual gift because Paul says this love is greater than all the gifts. So all the gifts you can imagine, all the gifts he's talked about, this is greater than that. So it can't be the same thing as spiritual gifts. It's something different. So why is he talking about something that is not a spiritual gift? in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts. Okay, what, what is this about? Well, one explanation could be, well, he's holding up this ideal. Okay, he wants the Corinthians to look at this and follow this. And if you're thinking that, then you're probably right. Okay, this is probably one reason he shifted gears. Here's this ideal. Look at this, Corinthians. Okay, you're not really following this, but look at it. Follow it. But when you look at the whole context, I think it's more than that. Okay, it's more than an ideal. But this teaching on agape love is actually a correction because the Corinthians weren't really doing well in terms of spiritual gifts. So Paul had to step in here and actually correct them, and he spent an entire chapter in the middle of his teaching on spiritual gifts to correct them very directly. And so what is the correction? Well, somewhere, somehow, they had thrown themselves into spiritual gifts. They became obsessed over spiritual gifts. And because of that, they became divided over spiritual gifts. And from other passages in 1 and 2 Corinthians, we can kind of gather the reason why. Okay, why did this happen? Well, the reason why is because the Corinthians felt like the spiritual gifts were keys to influence and power. See, in the Corinthian culture in that time, in that place, they really, really valued power. They really valued influence. Everywhere you went in that city, you would see these large statues to these gods and these politicians and these athletes, and they really looked up to these figures. And so they're really wanting influence and power and knowledge and wisdom. And somewhere along the line, 
they kind of said, you know what? I think spiritual gifts are the key. Okay, this is how we're going to get all these things. And so then when they became obsessed over this, they became divided over it. And so here's Paul now stepping in and going, no. Okay, you guys are so off base. So he's correcting them. And you can hear Paul in these verses picking out certain gifts and correcting them on it. Okay, he's talking about specific gifts. Look at verses 1 and 2. He said, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I have not love. I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. What gift is he mentioning? The gift of tongues. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and yet if I don't have love, I'm nothing. So what is he talking about? He's talking about the gift of prophecy. He goes on. He mentions the gifts of faith, giving, martyrdom. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver on my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So do you see that? He's pointing out certain gifts. So what is Paul saying about these gifts? Well, he was saying, even if you had these gifts, and you're using them in amazing ways. Okay, you're using them in the highest way possible, to the greatest of your ability. If you don't have love in your heart, you actually did nothing. You accomplished nothing. You are nothing. So that language is very blunt. It's very pointed. So, for example, he's saying all of you with the gift of tongues, and you love to show off this gift. You love praying in tongues in front of others. You call it the, the tongues of angels. But if you don't have love, you're nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Okay, when my son was very little, he used to grab all the pots out of the kitchen cupboard. He was about two or three, and he would just bang, 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 right? If you're not a parent yet, this is what you have to look forward to. But it's just it's a wonderful thing, right? Bang, bang. It's like, stop it. But what is that? Well, Paul is using this example to say that's exactly what you sound like to God. The tongues of angels, my goodness. Listen to this gift, right? The, the prayer of tongues and to God is just bang, 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 bang. It's nothing. It's just noise. He goes on. You could literally give your body to the flames. In other words, you could die as a martyr. Most of us here will not do that. Most of us here wouldn't even dare to go that far in our faith. But some will die as a martyr. What could be more courageous than that, more committed than that, more glorifying to God than that? And yet Paul says, but if you don't have agape love, you have zero reward in heaven. God just says, oh, you're here. Come in. <laughs> you have zero reward in heaven. So Paul is basically making this very strong case that you need love. Okay, this is his correction. Without this necessary ingredient, even if you're using these gifts at the highest ability, if you don't have this ingredient, it is for nothing. But why is love so necessary when you're using spiritual gifts? Okay, why is this so necessary? Well, it has to do with the purpose for spiritual gifts. There's a very specific purpose that God has for them. And we've already looked at it. But if you do not use spiritual gifts for that purpose, but rather you use it for a different purpose, in fact, a very opposite purpose from what God intended, then these gifts become worthless. So you're wondering, okay, what are you talking about? Well, let me give you an illustration to help explain what I'm talking about. But this year, we're going to be having midterm elections, so some of you guys might be excited for that. Most of us are not. But we're going to be having elections this year. And basically, we're going to be in November voting and choosing who the new members of Congress will be, right? And many people are not looking forward to it because politics has become a very dirty and ugly game in our country. It's very ugly, very dirty. 
In fact, the word politician has even become an insult in our society. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, you're acting like a politician, that is probably not a good thing. It's like, hey, <laughs> don't insult me like that. So that's not a good thing, but why? Because if you think about it, politics has nothing inherently wrong in it. In fact, it's something necessary for governments to function. You need this. But why has it become so ugly? Well, it's because these politicians have been given an incredible gift by the people when they get voted in. And so they're given this gift of position and power, and they're always filled with hope and idealism when they receive this gift, and that's why we hear these lofty speeches and people are cheering them on. And so there's all this idealism, all this hope. But we know, but it never stays that way. And the reason is because eventually, once they come into office, you begin to see their true character coming out, and it's always what? Self-interest. Okay, not everyone across the board. I'm not pinning them the same, all of them. But for the most part, we know this. Self-interest begins to come out. And they begin to use this gift for their own gain. But that's not all. But who are they serving? It's not just the politicians who have this interest, but who are they serving? They're serving an entire people driven by self-interest. So think about what politics has become. It is leaders driven by self-interest serving an entire population driven by self-interest. And now we're wondering, why is this so ugly? Well, unfortunately, that's the whole game. Okay, this is what politics has become. Okay, this is the reason why it's so ugly and so dirty. Again, there's nothing inherent about politics that should make it that way, but this is the way it's become. And here's why. It's because this is always the inevitable fruit of the human heart. This is always what the human heart will become. It is always driven by self-interest. This is why Winston Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, but is better than all the rest. Okay? He was a politician. He knows what he's talking about. But the reason why is because this is the best we have. It's all just sinful human beings. He might not have been using that language, but it's just sinful human beings driven by sinful hearts, driven by self-interest. And so no matter what a gift it is to choose our leaders, I mean, that truly is a privilege. We get to choose our leaders. No matter what a gift it is to be voted in and serve as a leader, over time, people will always be corrupted by self-interest on all sides. So what am I saying? The very purpose of politics, which is to serve people, becomes corrupted by this total other purpose, which is self-interest. Okay, that's what politics is. And I think most of us are pretty familiar by all this. Okay, you already know this. I don't need to convince you. Well, when you now turn to spiritual gifts, this is pretty much how this works as well. But God has given an amazing gift of spiritual gifts to his body, to every believer. And the very purpose of these gifts is to do what? To serve the people. You are to serve for the common good. That is the very purpose God has intended. And yet what happens? We take these gifts. Initially, there's a lot of hope, a lot of idealism. You might even hear some lofty sermons, a lot, lofty speeches in your small group. And then little by little, it becomes corrupted by the same thing. The human heart corrupts it by self-interest. Now, I'm not saying that it's always wrong to pursue self-interest. Paul, in fact, the same author he said elsewhere, Philippians 2, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So Paul said, I know you look to your own interests. That's okay. So the Bible's realistic. But here's the problem. The problem is when you get driven by that self-interest. Okay, that is all that matters. You are just driven by that. That is the overarching concern. You know, I remember 
going to this one church service one time, and it was a little strange. I remember in the beginning it looked kind of normal, but then towards the end it became very strange to me. But I sat through the whole thing. But I remember this pastor was there, and he had the gift of prophecy, or that's what people have said. Whether he actually had it or not is a different topic. But I was kind of curious, so I went to the service. Somebody invited me. And so he preached the sermon, and then at the end of the service, he was kind of up on this platform, and he had this chair. He was sitting there, kind of almost like a throne. And then immediately, people started swarming around him, all around him, and they were kind of reaching out to him. And the reason why is because they just wanted him to touch them and then pray for them. It was almost kind of like people were worshiping this idol. That's the way it looked. I was kind of in the back, and it looked very strange to me. Now, I can't judge the pastor's heart, but he seemed pretty comfortable in that position, and he was praying for people and saying some, you know, prophetic things and all of that. But I was thinking to myself, if somebody is given that much adoration and influence because of his spiritual gift, then eventually... I wouldn't be surprised if something else gets lifted up. And it's not going to be Jesus Christ. But it's going to be self-interest. It's him being lifted up in himself. And by the way, all those people who are swarming around him and reaching up to him almost as if he was some sort of a savior, what were they doing? Why were they giving him so much adoration and influence? What were they driven by? The same thing, self-interest. They were being driven by the same thing. They all wanted something from him. Maybe they believed that it was God giving it to them through him, but whatever the case, they wanted something from him. All of this looked like self-interest. And so this is what happens. God has given an amazing gift. We're idealistic, we're hopeful, and yet it becomes corrupted. Our heart's corrupted every time. And we don't even have to go to that level of that pastor, but just having a gift simply at church that's recognized. Okay, maybe you have the gift of worship leading, you're up here, and people get blessed by you. Maybe you're teaching a Bible study. People, they give you some good compliments. You know, that was a great study. That helped me. Maybe you organized an event. It went really well. People compliment you. Maybe you're the person at church that everybody wants to go and share their problems with because you have the gift of wisdom. You have the gift of encouragement. So whatever it may be, it might just be a normal gift, but you start getting recognized, and then soon it becomes less about serving others and more about, wow, wow, look at how much... God is using me. Wow. Praise God, of course. <laughs> right? You immediately kind of de- praise God, but in your heart you're like, wow. Praise God. Wow. Praise God. Right? It's this kind of weird tension. Praise God, but wow, wow, wow. Look at what God is doing through my life. Look at how much people need me. In fact, people really need me. And so what ultimately is that? Is that really giving to God? Is that really giving to others? You know, I remember reading this story in the book Prodigal God. But it was the story of this gardener who one day he had a great harvest and he decided to bless his king. So he went to the king and he decided to give the best gift he possibly could. It was this gigantic carrot. And so he went to the king and said, oh, king, I had a great harvest this year and I wanted to give you this gift. Please receive this humble gift. And the king, knowing his heart, said, yes, thank you so much. And he took the gift and he said, you know what? Because I know your heart and how diligent you are, and I actually know that beside where you live, there's a plot of land. I want to give you that land. And so this farmer, this gardener, for the carrot that he gave to the king, he received a plot of land. And so a nobleman saw that entire thing happen, and he thought in his heart, whoa, if that gardener gave a carrot and got land for that, what do you think I'm going to get if I give the king the best stallion in my stable? The best horse I have, what do you think I'm going to get? And so then he took his best black stallion, 
and he marched it out to the king, and he presented it to the king. And he said, O king, this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. So here he is, giving this lavish gift. And the king looked at it, discerned his heart, and he said, okay, thank you. You may go now. And so in that moment, the nobleman looked very confused. And then the king, knowing his confusion, said, you know what, come back. Let me explain. That gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Right? You're giving me this gift, but it's not really for me. You're giving it to yourself. In other words, you're just giving me this so that you can gain something better. And so this is what self-interest does. Even the gifts we give to others, even the, the gifts that we use for others, ultimately is a giving to ourselves. In other words, we're only giving so that we can get. And so when that happens, whether it's spiritual gifts or politics, this is what the Bible says. What you're doing is worthless. That is a worthless gift in the eyes of God. Why? Because self-interest directly contradicts the very purpose for why this thing exists. What's the very purpose God gave you spiritual gifts? Is it to gift yourself so that you can feel good? And, and again, spiritual gifts will make you feel good so that you can have an identity and know your purpose. I mean, yes, spiritual gifts will give you all that. But is that the main reason why God gave it to you, so that you can gift yourself? No. It's so that you may truly give gifts to others and to God. And if it's not that, if it's rather gifting yourself, the Bible says it is worthless. You know, going back to politics, I think it's easier for us to recognize that when it has to do with politics. Okay, I, I think it's easy. But these politicians come in and, you know, oh, thank you for voting me in, right? What a gift. And I will serve you, right? And they give all these speeches and they have all these debates and they're lobbying and all these things are happening, driven by self-interest. And we know, right? We see right through it. We're like, this is going to accomplish nothing, <laughs> right? It'll do nothing for the people. It is worthless. And so we know that. And yet, when it comes to spiritual gifts, I think we have a harder time seeing that. Politics, yeah, easy to see. Spiritual gifts, not so easy to see. We get caught up. And this is what happened with the Corinthians. They couldn't see it. They just couldn't see it. They couldn't see it that God had gifted me, and now I'm using it, and it's wonderful, it is powerful, but all the while I'm gifting myself. And they just couldn't see that. And this is why Paul had to come to them, and he's using himself as an example. He actually shifts the whole teaching into the first person. So Paul's saying, look, look, I'm going to include myself here. This is how serious this is. I'm using myself. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong. I'm like pots, bang, bang, bang. Right? It's just sound, noise. If I have prophetic powers, I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And Paul did have the gift of prophecy. You've heard me speak prophetic things to you. If I have all faith, and did Paul have faith? Yes. Faith to even move mountains, I would say yes. But Paul says, look at me. But if I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a big zero. Your apostle, your pastor, I'm nothing. It's all worthless. So then let's go back to our original question. Why is agape love necessary when using spiritual gifts? Okay, this is not just a little side intermission, excursion in his teaching on gifts. This is very central. It's the meat. But why is this so necessary? Well, the reason why is because agape love directly contradicts self-interest. It directly comes against it in a forceful way because agape love is sacrificing 
yourself for the sake of others. Even as you use spiritual gifts, if you have agape love, you are sacrificing yourself for the sake of others. That is the very nature of agape love. And then we come to our second point, the nature of love. So after Paul mentions the need for it, okay, without it, you're worthless. He goes into the nature of love. Look at verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It, is not, it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So here God, through Paul, is describing the nature of love. So what is love like? Why, why does it come directly against self-interest so, so directly? Well, these are very famous words here. It's hanging in, in bathrooms all throughout the world. <laughs> and this is a beautiful definition of what love is. And yet, I would say, I would argue, this is not a complete list. Okay, this is not a full list of all the qualities of love. And the reason is because, remember, this was a correction. Paul is correcting the Corinthians, so he's highlighting, most likely, things, qualities that the Corinthians lacked. So he's not saying this is the sum total of what love is. No, you could probably think of other things that love does and love is. But he's highlighting things that the Corinthians lacked in their desire for power and wisdom and status and influence. I mean, they're dividing over all this, and he's saying, look, this is what you guys lack that you should have in love. And so what did he mention? Well, he mentioned patience, kindness, not envying, not boasting, not being arrogant or rude. This, these are things that the Corinthians probably were doing. Not insisting on your own way, not rejoicing in evil, rejoicing, but rejoicing in truth, bearing all things, believing all things, enduring all things. So as you look at those qualities, what do you notice? Okay, do you see anything common about all these things? Well, I would say they are all focused on the same thing, intentional behaviors for the sake of others. Okay, these are all behaviors, whether it's doing them or not doing other things, okay, doing certain things or not doing other things, but these are all behaviors for the sake of others. And notice what they're not focused on. Okay, what are these qualities not? How others make you feel, Right? This has nothing to do with how other people make you feel, which, by the way, is what everyone says love is in our society today. This is what every modern song is always about. You know, no one's saying these songs better than Michael Jackson, but Michael Jackson literally had a song, The Way You Make Me Feel. He literally had that song. I think I might have sang it one time. But the way you make me feel, the way you make me feel, you really turn me on. You really turn me on. You knock me off my feet. You knock me off my feet. I don't know why he's repeating himself. My lonely days are gone. My lonely days are gone. Ah, ooh. Okay, this is, this is very typical. And these, the way you make me feel songs are everywhere. Taylor Swift has one. Ariana Grande has one. So I hear. I don't listen to these people. Just want to clarify that. But they have songs very, very similar. So this is the definition of love, right? It is always about the way you make me feel. And yeah, maybe I need to be good to you too, right? It's mutual. You make me feel good, I make you feel good. You scratch my back, I scratch your back. And so that's what love is. So agape love is centered on the feelings that are produced. And along with that, maybe some behaviors. And yet, when you look at this list of qualities of love in the Bible... It is always centered on intentional behaviors for the sake of others, not on the way others make you feel. And in fact, agape is committed to these behaviors so much so you do them even when you don't feel good. 
So yeah, feelings actually are involved here, but these are bad feelings. You know, when you go back to the quality of patience, another word for that is long-suffering. In the Greek, you can translate it long-suffering. So in other words, even when I'm suffering because of you, <laughs> you're not giving me good feelings, you're actually giving me bad feelings. I'm suffering because of you and your problems. You know, just the other day I was complaining to my uh, wife, but I, I get these phone calls occasionally from a family member, and then suddenly, early in the morning, that person's problem becomes my problem. Why? I just woke up. Why is your problem my problem today? And so it's like, oh, I'm suffering because of you. But that happens all the time in life. But even when you're causing me to feel suffering, agape love says, I'll continue. I'll continue to suffer. Why? For your sake. Right? So it does, it does involve sufferings or feelings, but a very different kind. So here the issue is not about what I'm feeling so much, but the real issue is even legitimate things that I have a right not to do or right to do, such as the right to not suffer, the right to have my own personal time, my own personal space. Agape says, you know, I will give that up for the sake of others. See, that's the real issue. And that's a hard sell in today's culture because that's the idol of America. Maybe we were founded on Christian principles. Maybe we have a Christian worldview when we first started this nation. Maybe that's all true. But I do know one idol in this country is freedom and rights, right? Individual rights. We worship these things. And yet agape love says, no, for the sake of you, I will even give up these cherished rights. See, that, that's what we're talking about. You know, commenting on these verses, theologian Patterson, he said, agape is an attitude of radical and completely selfless concern for others. Okay, listen to that. Agape is a radical and utterly or completely selfless concern for others, which cannot be readily combined with concepts like rights or fairness, both of which imply that the person has certain legitimate claims for himself. Agape, by contrast, requires that in his relation with others, a person goes the whole way in their direction. I like the way he put it. That's what agape love does. You know what? Man, you're causing me to suffer. I have bad feelings. You want to know the way you make me feel? I don't feel good. Right? And you're encroaching on my space, my schedule. I have the schedule all planned out. You're encroaching on these things, and yet what is it? Agape is a radical, completely selfless concern for others. It is going the whole way in the other person's direction. I will go all the way in your direction to whatever you need. And who embodied that? Of course, Jesus. Okay, did we make him feel good? We did not make him feel good. Okay, Ask Jesus when he was on the cross, how do I make you feel, Jesus? And yet he went the whole way in our direction for our sake. So what is the nature of love? It's this. It is a set of selfless acts for the sake of others. It is a set of selfless acts for the sake of others. And these selfless acts are not sentimental. Okay, true love is not a wet noodle. It is a steel beam. But when Paul said love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth, okay, please pay attention to what he's saying there. Okay, you might think that he would have said love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with what? Right doing. Doing good, right? You might think he would have said that. Okay, the opposite of wrongdoing is doing good. But that's not what he said. He said, love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
So what is Paul doing? He's comparing, contrasting evil, wrongdoing, wickedness, evil, with truth. So love understands that. He love understands that truth is what people ultimately need. Even if it hurts me to tell this truth to you, I will say it. Why? Because this is for your highest good. You might not believe it. You might not see it that way. But this is the highest good for you. And we're not just talking about some truth you're imagining, but we're talking about the truth in God's word. This is what love understands. The truth is always what people need. It is always what is best for people. Again, not any truth, but God's truth, his word. And so love will put yourself out there and you will speak it. You will share it. You will model it. Even if it's against everything in that other person, you will do it. Why? Because I know this is what you need. And so this is, this is love. See, agape love is not for the cowardly. It is not for the shy or the people who don't want to be bothered. It is for the courageous. You need to actually have steel in your spine to love somebody. It's not Michael Jackson the way you make me feel. You make me feel pretty bad, but I want to love you. I have to love you because God loved me. This is agape love. So agape love is no joke. It is not sentimental. It is not for the weak or the cowardly. In fact, it is for the the strongest among us, right? It's the most courageous. It's the person who's willing to sacrifice everything, put themselves out there, stretch out their neck for the sake of others. That's agape love. Again, who modeled that? It's Jesus. And so now you can see how vital this love is when it comes to spiritual gifts because when you begin to use your spiritual gifts, you're going to feel good. Yeah, you're going to think, yeah, how does this make me feel? It makes me feel good. I feel needed. I feel wanted. I feel recognized. And is that bad? No. That's okay. But is that ultimately the purpose for these gifts? Again, no. Paul directly said, 1 Corinthians 12, 7, the entire reason God gave gifts to us is for the common good. It's for the people around you. Yes, you get some benefits, but don't use them to gift yourself. Use it to gift truly others. So how can we possibly use these gifts and not have the thing that motivates us to serve others, which is love? For Paul, this is just so clear. It's just so obvious. I mean, we read the Bible and go, okay, why did he stick this in the middle of Spiritual gift, I don't get it. But hey, I like it. I'll put it on my bathroom wall. <laughs> but, we, but we don't understand all the connections. And yet for Paul, and more to the point, God, because he inspired Paul, is crystal clear. There is no way you're going to use spiritual gifts and have no love in your heart. You're wasting your time. It is a big fat zero. It amounts to nothing. Now, at this point, if you've been paying attention, if you have any conviction in the word of God, you might be thinking, all right, okay. I need to have love. Okay, I need agape love. And you might go back to that list of qualities and you might begin to insert yourself in there. And you might go, okay, love is patient, I must be patient. Love is kind, I must be kind. I must not envy, I must not boast, I must rejoice in the truth, right? You begin to insert yourself in there and that would be very normal. Okay, I've done that too. But let me encourage you. If you do that, if you're doing that, then you've you're already defeated before you begin. You've already defeated yourself. And here's why. It's because agape love is not just a human love, but it is God's very own love for us, and so it is impossible. It is as impossible as you trying to reach up to heaven and go to where God is, because it is God's love. It is in the realm of God. It is not the realm of man and women. It is not our realm. I mean, look at what we do all the time. Remember, go back to politics, midterm elections. 
right? We do not have agape love. This is, this is God's love, his realm. It is as impossible as going up to God. And not only is it an impossible standard, but we will corrupt it and we will change the standard. That is how fallen our hearts are. But we will take something as pure and holy as God's agape love and we will turn it and make it all about ourselves. You know, I saw this very interesting example of this, but I'm reading through this book. Uh, it was actually not uh, recent, but a while ago. I was reading through this book by David Paulison. But he already passed away. He's a counselor and a theologian, very well known. But he wrote this book, and in this book, he was actually critiquing the five love languages. Do you know that book? It's a very popular book. A lot of Christians like it. It's kind of Christian, pseudo-Christian. But the five love languages, written by Gary Chapman, I think. But it's a book that talks about there's five different ways that we could show love to people, right? And, and there's truth to this. I'm not saying that this is all wrong. I mean, there's truth. But you can spend quality time. That's one kind of language. You can give gifts, another kind. Acts of service, a third kind. Affirming words, right? You could tell people you love them, number four. And then finally, physical affection, number five. Those are the five different ways you could show love to people. And so as I began to read Paulison's criticism or critique of this, I'm thinking, okay, what's wrong with that? And yet he began to just carefully and gently unpack, well, here's the reason why this is so dangerous. And you know what? I was going to read an excerpt in the book, and the book is in my bag. <laughs> I forgot to grab it. But this is why it's so dangerous. It's because of the human heart. Okay, you could take something as normal and as good as just showing love to other people through one of these five languages, and yet we corrupt it. We make it about ourselves. And so he gave some examples of this. But he said, affirming words, question mark. He's like, this is what happens oftentimes. I feel loved when the crowd cheers and when you offer me flattering compliments like the mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all, right? And actually, in fact, the author of that book, The Five Love Languages, he talks about that. He says that's very normal. We all have this emotional gas tank and sometimes in our relationship, that gas tank gets very, very low. So as we begin to focus on filling somebody else's gas tank, then they're gonna turn around and fill your gas tank and we fill each other's gas tanks emotionally and that's how we love each other. We do it through these five love languages. So again, what's wrong with that? Well, here's what's wrong. It's because even in the subtlest way, we will take these love languages and make it all about us. Again, affirming words? I want to hear affirming words. Tell me. Tell me how much you love me. Tell me, right? And you don't tell me today, right? It's like this like pendulum that we go back and forth. Quality time. I feel loved when you drop everything to focus on me completely understanding me, give me unconditional love, agree with all my opinions, and never disagree with me, question me, or interrupt me. Okay, subtly, that's what we're wanting. Quality time, you want quality time? Gifts, I feel love when you say sugar daddy. That's a little weird, but <laughs> giving me money, buying me lots of nice stuff, taking me on exotic vacations, and pampering me. Acts of service, I feel loved when you do exactly what I want and don't make me don't make any demands on me and say your wish is my command. Physical touch, I feel love when you go along with my kinky fantasies and when you make me feel like the most special person in the world. I think he's referring to married couples. But see, we subtly twist these things and we, they become corrupted. And so this is the danger of even taking something like God's agape love and going, oh yeah, I'm going to put myself right in there and I'm going to do it. Love is patient, I'm patient. Love is kind, I'm going to be kind. Love does not boast, I won't boast. Like, what are we doing? We are inserting ourselves right in there, and then before you know it, it becomes corrupted. That's just how our hearts are. 
So agape love is not only selfless behavior, it's not just sacrificing yourself for the sake of others, but agape love is divine. There's a divine quality about it. Human beings cannot attain this. It is in the realm of God and God alone. And so this brings us to our final point, the endlessness of love, the endlessness of love. Look at 1 Corinthians 13.9. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but when face to face, now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. So here we get the all-important passage that talks about when miraculous gifts will pass away. We already looked at this. We're not going to review it again. Paul's very clear, but the miraculous gifts are here to stay until the perfect comes. What is the perfect? It is the perfect state that Jesus will usher in when he comes back. So again, we already looked at this. This is the passage. But that is not the main argument that Paul is making here. I know a lot of people use this as an argument for continuationism, but this isn't the main point. But the main argument that Paul is making is about the endlessness of love, the permanence of love. He starts out by saying love never ends. So what is he talking about here? Well, I believe he's beginning to point to the divine nature of love. Because there are a lot of things that are appropriate for this age and appropriate for us here. There are a lot of things, things that we do, that we can do and should do. They're appropriate right now. Paul calls it the age of being a child. So for some Bible scholars, they they include uh, faith and hope. But more to the point, he's talking about things like tongues and prophecies. These are things we can do. If God has given you the gift of prophecy, as amazing as that sounds, you can do it. You can prophesy. Speaking in tongues, there are many people that I know personally, even in my own life, you can speak in tongues. You can do these things. God has gifted you. And yet, so that's the realm of being a child, and yet Paul is saying, but there's a different realm that you have not attained yet. It's not here yet. And that realm he calls the realm of being an adult. And so let me ask you, in this entire passage, what is the one thing he's pointing to that is in that realm of being an adult? What's he talking about? What is in that other realm that you have not attained yet? It's love. Some Bible scholars might include faith and hope in there, but, but I don't think so. If there's some debate there, but I don't think you need faith and hope in heaven, right? When Jesus comes back. Why do you need faith when he's standing right in front of you? Why do you need to hope in his promises when they're all fulfilled? You don't need faith and hope in heaven. But what's the one thing that continues on? What's endless? It's love. Okay, that's the thing in the age of being an adult. So there are some things that are appropriate now. There are some things that are appropriate later, right? When we're fully mature, fully grown up. You know, I remember when my daughter, uh, I have a beautiful daughter. She's a love of my life. I love my two boys too, but my daughter of mine. <laughs> she's very special to me. But I remember when I used to come really close to her when she was like two or three to give her a goodnight kiss, she would just look at my face and she would just slap me for some reason. I don't know why. She's just like, she'd be like, hey, 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 and she slaps me. And I'd be like, oh, that's so cute. And I'd grab her hand and slap my face even more, right? And she's like, daddy, stop, right? But I'm like, oh, that's so cute. She's 11 now. If I came into her and I said, oh, honey, good night, I'd be like, stop it, <laughs> right? What was appropriate then is no longer appropriate now. Okay, we know that. Okay, nowadays, when I get close in, she goes, daddy, you have nose hairs. You need to cut your nose hairs. So she's very observant. 
but she no longer slaps me. That is not appropriate. And so there are some things that are appropriate in the age of a child that is no longer appropriate when you grow up. And so this is what Paul is talking about. And I believe he's really highlighting, he's really driving this entire argument towards love. He love never ends. He didn't say faith, hope, and love never end. He just said love never ends. And when Jesus finally comes back and the perfect state is ushered in, faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is love. So in other words, what is the one thing that we cannot fully attain until Jesus comes back? It is love. Why is that? It's because love is divine. It is in the realm of God. We cannot attain this on our own. And so we're coming to a close. Then what does this mean then? Roy, tell me, then, then what do you mean? Like, what, what should I do if I can't attain this love? Well, let's go back to 1 Corinthians 13. And rather than looking at those qualities and inserting yourself, what you should do, and you might have heard this before, but don't insert, oh, I need to be patient, I need to be kind. You should look at that and say, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Go back to those verses. But what does it say? I'm sorry, I lost my place for a moment. Verse 4. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes in all things. He endures all things. Jesus never fails. In the Greek there, love never ends. It's literally love never falls to the ground. Jesus never falls. He never fails. Okay, why is this so important? Again, love is divine. Agape love is not something we have. It is not in the realm of human beings. Don't fool yourself. You cannot leave here and go, oh, I'm going to be loving. No, you will not. You will corrupt his standard like every other human being on this planet. And you will begin to gift yourself. You will take the gift of God and begin to use it for yourself and gift yourself. And so what is the only hope we have? You have to look at Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.14. This isn't up on the screen. But it says, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves. Did you get that? So that you would stop gifting yourself. Stop pretending to serve others, but you're really doing it for yourself. You will no longer live for yourself, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Amen? So what we need to do, and we're coming to a close truly now, but what we need to do is you need to have a fresh Conversation with Jesus. You need to talk to him again. The image I get, even as I was driving here this morning to church, is the picture of Peter after he denied Jesus three times. He thought he loved Jesus. He thought he was going to take a stand for Jesus. He didn't. Denied him three times. But that's not where it ended. But where did it end? At the very end of the Gospel of John, Jesus appeared after his resurrection. He made a little breakfast. And he said, children, do you have any food? And Peter immediately recognized that it was Jesus, or John did, and he told Peter. And then Peter put on his clothes, and he jumped in the water, and he swam to shore. And he had a conversation with Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? 
And why is it that Jesus could ask him that with no explanation and Peter already knew? Why, why could Jesus do that? Because Jesus had clearly and dramatically and ultimately demonstrated his love for Peter. And Peter knew that. I imagine even as they were having breakfast on the shore of Galilee, talking to each other, Peter probably saw the, the holes in his hands. He probably saw the wounds. And so Peter knew. No explanation needed. Jesus said, do you love me? Because you know how much I love you. And so that's the conversation Peter had. And I think we all need to have that again. Okay, th this is where the agape love comes. It is not something you have. You cannot attain this. It must come from him. Amen? So let's come before the Lord. Let's bow before him. But we are hopeless. The human heart is utterly corrupted. And if you don't understand that or believe that, it's because you haven't lived life long enough. Trust me, the longer you live, the more convinced you become. You know, I remember talking to somebody about faith and Christianity, and they always bring up the noble savage. What about the noble savage right there? You know, out there somewhere with no belief in God, and yet they're living good moral lives, the noble savage. You know, when I was younger, I had no answer to that. But you know, I'm a little older now. And this is the answer that I realize I should give, that I have given, is that person doesn't exist. That's a fictional person, fictional character. There is no such thing as a noble savage. I mean, there are barely even noble Christians who know God, who have the gospel, who belong to a church. Come on. Okay, let's get real. Let's get honest. You think you're righteous? You think you can attain the standard of love? You think you can serve God truly? Out of your heart, every motivation is agape? No way. Me too. No way. No way. We're absolutely condemned on our own. No way. Only Jesus. So, Lord God, we just come before you right now, Lord Jesus, and we ask for your forgiveness, Lord, for every single day we sin against you. Our hearts, our hearts are corrupted. On its own, it is beyond hope. But with you, all things are possible. You make the dead come alive. You make our hearts truly alive with your love. Romans 5.5. 5. God has shed abroad his agape into your hearts by the Holy Spirit. Okay, that's what we need. We need your agape poured out into our hearts through faith in your son, the very living, incarnate expression of agape. Jesus, you're the walking, talking agape in our midst. We need you. So please help us. Lord, we do care about your gifts. We do want to discover our spiritual gifts, but we don't want them to be worthless. We don't want to use them to just gift ourselves, which is what happens every single time when we're left to ourselves. Lord, we don't want that. We, we want to use them truly for the other, truly. 
So, Lord God, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you for uh, just your word. Your word is crystal clear. There's no ambiguity. Thank you so much. We give you all the glory and all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let's just uh, come before the Lord as we do every Sunday. Just a, a few moments, but let's just pray and ask God. God, please help, help me. Please pour your agape love in, into my heart. You can confess your sins. But let's just come before the Lord right now. Thank you, Lord Jesus.